Now, cookbooks, I mean, food in general, they, they say so much more about the world, so much more than what we just put in our tummy. Uh, these cookbooks, they're not just recipes. Often they're about a time, a place, the, the cultural context of that moment in which that book was created. Social, political documents, if you will. There is a fine example in this country, Australia's oldest continuous community cookbook, the Barossa Cookery Book. It was initially released in 1917, a war fundraiser. It is now in its 33rd edition. Shirley Menz and Marika Ashmore, also known as those Barossa girls, want to publish a companion to it. Uh, they have begun the Barossa Cookery Book Project. Shirley, Marika, welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Let's let's go into a bit of this history because it is a remarkable thing. The, the story that, that gave us this book originally in, in 1917, who's, who's going to take up that tale for us? So in 1917, you know, the Barossa, like all communities across Australia, they were reeling in the midst of World War One. The sons and daughters were serving overseas. Many of them had already lost their lives. The Tanunda community in particular, as part of, uh, you know, a central part of the Barossa, wanted to raise funds to establish the Tanunda Soldiers Memorial Hall. They put together a community cookbook. Now, at that stage, community cookbooks were a really brand new idea. So the Barossa community picked it up. Uh, they printed the 1917 edition with 400 recipes in it. Just, just stop on that, 400 recipes. It's, That's right. Yeah, so 400 recipes was the first edition. Then again, in 1932, they needed to raise additional funding. So they called for a second round of recipe contributions and put together um, the edition that we now see available in bookshops. They added another 600 recipes. So it took the cookbook to 1,000 recipes in total. And so now it is one of Australia's oldest community cookbooks and it's one of the very few that has remained in constant print. But the other thing that we really love about this little cookbook is that the proceeds from the book, so if you buy a current edition book, the proceeds mm. still go to maintaining the original building, which now continues to serve the community as Barossa's regional gallery. That building you mentioned, I mean, what was the origin story of that? Now a gallery, what was it in the, in the first place? Well, originally it was built by the Tanunda Club, which was a small organisation in the in the Tanunda district. And then it became the Tanunda Soldiers Memorial Hall in 1917 with the, with the um, raising of the additional funds. And it was endowed to the community and it served for many years as the Tanunda Soldiers Memorial Hall for dances and movies. And then I'm not exactly sure what year it became part of the Barossa Council asset group and was turned over to become the Barossa's regional gallery. So it's the same building. It just serves a slightly different purpose. Let's, Shirley, let, let, let's wind forward to the present and, and, and the project to dip through this extraordinary resource. What, what are the extra sort of steps you're taking? I mean, you, you've been trying, as I understand it, to interview some of the descendants of the original contributors. That's an extraordinary effort. Yes, that's right. One of the things, you know, that, that our research of this cookbook really opened our eyes to was the fact that in 1917 and again in 1932, when the women contributed these recipes, you know, the standard protocol was that you didn't use your own name. You, you know, you had no autonomy, you know, socially or legally. And so all of these women who contributed recipes are doing so under their husband's initial. So it was their life skill and their knowledge, but they don't even have their own name on it. And so that sort of triggered something in us that sort of thought, well, this is not really very fair. So, you know, our project started 
sort of with the intention of shining a light on the stories of the women who built our community and telling their stories along with the idea that we wanted to update their recipes. You know, these recipes are 100 years old now and we wanted to carry them forward in a way that people could still use them. So, you know, we've updated the recipe, well, some of the recipes with a modern metric method with beautiful food photography. And al- alongside the updated recipe, we would like to publish the story of the woman who first contributed it. Marika, the, this idea of the original recipes and, and how they need to be supplemented, I'm really intrigued by this because it it goes to the way in which I think we, we work in the kitchen in the modern world. A, we want to see a picture and B, we want a, a pretty detailed method. And, and that wasn't always the case. No, absolutely not. And I guess that that's the thing with the cookbook in its current uh, incarnation really is that it speaks of a time when most women knew how to bake a cake. You knew how to put something together. You knew that you needed to cream your butter and sugar. There, There is very little method in this book at all. A lot of these women were using wood-fired ovens, so there's no oven temperature given either. So it's a lot of, you know, put it in a quick oven. And that's very confronting for new cooks today, I think, who, as you said, are very used to seeing a picture and also a full method. But we love these recipes and we'd love to see people making them more often and for them to be a a regular recipe that's made in their household. So that's why we've tried to convert them. So we haven't changed them. They're still the same amounts of ingredients. We've just made them a bit more approachable for people. So we've converted them to metric and given a method and and an uh, accurate oven temperature. Do you have an example on the top of your head of of, of that sort of minimalism in in the original versions? This is a ginger sponge recipe. So it's a quarter cup of butter, three quarters cup sugar, Uh, One pound, 12 ounces flour, one teaspoon of ginger, half a cup of milk, half a cup of golden syrup, one teaspoon mixed spice, two teaspoons cream of tartar, one teaspoon soda, two eggs. Bake for 20 minutes. So that's it. (laughs) All the ingredients, no method. That's so good, isn't it? Because as you say, there's the assumption, of course you know, of course you know what we're doing here. (laughs) Absolutely. And you know that you need some sponge tins and you know how, you know, what temperature to bake them at. And I mean, this is a really fabulous recipe, this ginger sponge. We've made it many, many times and it's a real showstopper. But for most people to look at that, it's very, very unapproachable, a little bit scary. The other thing, Marika, that, that, that is probably a little bit different too about the time and food at that time is the really sort of strict seasonality uh, that people would have had to work with. No big food miles going back to 1917. No, absolutely. And the train had arrived sort of in the Barossa Valley maybe four or five years previously. So it did bring some ingredients that we may not have been able to see before or things that were slightly more fancy and things like coconut and you know, tinned tinned oysters and tinned pineapple and those kind of things. But most of, yes, most of the other recipes are quite seasonal. There's a lot of walnut recipes in the cake section, so a lot of date and walnut or walnut coffee cake because in the valley a lot of people had walnut trees in their yard. So it really was something that you could get easily and cheaply. Shirley, a lot of of the... The settlers in this part of the world were, of course, German, and that that was a source of some. We, you know, we're talking here of, of war times. Uh, South Australians uh, will be aware of the, the difficult story of, of Fritz, which I think during the first or the Second World War was renamed as Austral Sausage. There was a an element of sort of anti-German sentiment. Is that expressed somehow in the book? 
Yes, it is. Very clearly, actually, when you know what you're looking for. So in 1917, of course, you know, Australia was at war with Germany. So the Barossa's really strong Germanic heritage, you know, the, the, the cookbook was really an exercise in them demonstrating their support for the empire as much as it was about uh, raising funds. So we see, you know, this really Germanic community with an almost you know, 100% exclusion of Germanic recipes in the cookbook. So, you know, we don't see any of the traditional German recipes in the 1917 edition at all. And in fact, we see some of the German recipes um, having their name changed. So, you know, there was a, a classic biscuit um, made using ammonia and it was called a, a Blitzkuchen, which is a quick biscuit. But in that 1917 edition, they changed its name and they called it a Kilbourne biscuit because, you know, that was so much more appropriately English. So, yes, it, by 1932, the social climate had changed a little bit. So we do start to see some of the German recipes appearing with their traditional German names. But again, nowhere near the percentage you'd expect to see in a community that, you know, that was so exclusively German like ours. So, yes, you know, it's really interesting when, when you look at it from a social perspective about, you know, what these recipes say about the political and social climate that these women were living in. And what else do we learn, do you think, socially over that, that extraordinary period of time? I mean, this is such a, it's a longitudinal study, is it not, of, of, of a part of the world and, and how we work within it. What are the, what are the things that you found out about that, that part of the world? Uh, look, one of the things, you know, the, the resounding themes that we come up against all the time when we're researching these stories, you know, the, the stories of sacrifice and loss, yet this incredible sense of overriding civic commitment so, you know, so many of the women, we've come across stories where, you know, their eldest son had already been killed by 1917, you know, and he was missing in action or died of wounds or, you know, some horrific, horrible story, heartbreaking. And yet, you know, here these women are still actively participating and actively contributing to their communities. Mm. You know, they, they couldn't help their own son anymore, but they were determined to help everybody else's. You know, and that that really is incredibly moving and humbling to read those stories and and to think about the environment that they were living in. And Marika, what, the the idea of of getting back to some of the women of of trying to tell the stories of these this legion of anonymous contributors. What success have you had there? And I, I'm wondering what 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 the process is. What what are the paths that you've discovered to to find these women? Oh. We've been pretty successful, I, I think. I mean, we've now been doing this project for probably three years or so solidly. I mean, sometimes it's just asking people in the community if they know anybody that was a contributor. But I've done a lot of research uh, through digitised newspapers, just trying to find the name. And, of course, because these women are in under their husband initial often that's the first place that you have to start with family trees and things it's easier to search for a male's initial and a female's we've been very lucky to actually find some living connections to these women none of none of the women unfortunately are still alive but we have had um, been able to have wonderful conversations with daughters and granddaughters and sons and grandsons so that part is really rewarding. Often it starts with a, a cold email, really, a cold call email per se, where you send an email to somebody saying, look, I know this sounds like a really weird question, but are you related to Mrs. So-and-so? <laughs> and most of the time, <laughs> the, um, the response is fabulous. If, if, I, wonder, I wonder if you found any examples of, of 
women in, in, in a family who generation after generation have contributed? Are there any sort of serial offenders? We have a couple of mother-daughter combinations. And most recently, we did find a group of sisters, which on face value, they all had different surnames. So when you look at the recipe to start with, or the, the contributors start with, you can't see a connection. But it ended up that there were four sisters, all with different surnames, who all contributed. And we have found that women contributed under their maiden name for the first edition in 1917. And then by 1932, they were married and then contributed again under their married name. So it's all connected. <laughs> well, so there's, there's that, that sort of social progress. I, I'm wondering too, the, the culinary uh, journey o- over this extraordinary period. Shirley, how, how, how does the food transform over these decades? Some of the recipes are dated. There's no doubt about that. Fascinatingly so, however, you know, we see lots of recipes for things like, well, there's a recipe for cold pigeon pie, which of course, you know, pigeons were a readily accessible game bird and 1917 was war rationing and 1932 was the depression. So you were eating what you could. So some of the recipes demonstrate that real fruit seasonal sort of aspect to their cooking. 1932, we see a really interesting kind of contrast because in 1932, we start to see recipes that you would take to a dainty supper or an afternoon tea. So there's two quite clear, distinct sort of types of recipes, ones that are sort of, you know, quite frothy and fancy and, and really quite detailed. Um, and then others that are really, really frugal. Depend, You know, ir- irrespective of that, we still end up with recipes that still resonate, especially now, you know, we're starting to see groceries, supermarket ingredients are starting to become more and more expensive. So recipes like this really are a roadmap back to eating in a way that is really quite seasonal and frugal. So, you know, some some of these recipes, despite the fact that they're 100 years old, they translate and they adapt perfectly. That, Marika, is, is the remarkable thing here, the, the, the way in which these things work cyclically, because... One of the big food trends of our moment is is that notion of seasonality, is, is this sudden new interest, not just in adversity, but just because it's a good thing in, in frugality, how we can make things go further. Here we are, talking 1917 in 2022. It's wonderful how things move in a cycle. It is, it is. And there's lots of things to be learnt and I think, uh, you know, new skills from old skills in a way, you know, discovering that there are ways to do things a little bit more frugally if you need to. And that's been a great lesson for us, I think. I mean, we were already uh, very much uh, dealing with the seasons and we both shop at the farmer's market and we're very, very used to doing that kind of way of eating and cooking. But I think to be able to bring that to a wider audience who would otherwise maybe not know anything about that has been really great. Now, this is not entirely a, a, a female endeavour. I'm intrigued by the story of Private Victor Off. Why don't you tell me <laughs> right. his, his little story? Yes, yeah, so in, 19, in 1917, he was serving in the trenches in the, the front lines in France, and he contributed a recipe for trench porridge, how to make trench porridge using a, a dried Anzac wafer, which was different to what we would know as an Anzac biscuit. So an Anzac wafer was part of the hardtack army rations. So he uh, he gave almost a tongue-in-cheek recipe for how to crush up an Anzac wafer and boil it in a billy with some uh, water from a shell hole to make porridge. Now, interestingly and fascinatingly, 
his recipe disappeared from the 1932 edition. So it was printed in the 1917 edition, but omitted from 1932. And we don't really know why. There's some speculation on our part. You know, was it just that it, by 1932, there was no, you know, people people were wanting to look forward rather than backwards. And so, you know, were they looking for a more optimistic outlook rather than a constant reminder of the war? Or was Victor somehow caught up in this anti-German sentiment? We, we really don't know the answer to the question. All we know is that he was in 1917, but not in 1932. Perhaps they decided that trench porridge... Mm. No, not really a thing of the moment. <laughs> no, well, that's right. We don't. We don't really know what what the answer is. I mean, um, we would love to intrigue. know, but of course, Victor's not here, and we can't ask him. Of course, <laughs> now much work is being done online. Thosebarossagirls.com.au. That's where we will find much of your current work. But there's hope for Absolutely. a hope for a physical edition of your. Well, how, how will we describe this? Annotated, updated, uh, the beautiful. Well, we're just we're describing it as a companion book because. Okay. We don't want to take away from the original. You know, the original has an awful lot of merit in its own right. Mm -hmm. So we don't we don't want people to stop using the original, but we would like to give them more information so that they understand its beauty and its depth, but also so that they're able to translate and use recipes. And the companion's availability, what's the story there? Uh, we don't know yet. So the manuscript has been presented to a publisher and at this stage we're still waiting for an answer. So it's in process. We need to, we need to create a public clamour. It's <laughs> important work. Absolutely. If you'd like to, <laughs> sign up. <laughs> Look, thanks, both of you. Details at that website, thosebarossagirls.com.au. You'll find all you need to know there. And the Barossa Cookery Book, a companion volume. If, if, we, all, if we all join hands and, and shout loud enough... We may make it a physical reality. Uh, Shirley Benz, Marika Ashmore, thank you so very much. Thank you, Jonathan. This is Blueprint, Radio National.